0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. What I'd been talking about was this whole idea of mission When many of us think of the word mission, we almost immediately, by virtue of background in church life, think of cross-cultural missions. We think of missions trips. Or maybe if you're in the business world, you think of a mission mission statement. Um, And all of those things are fine. However, cross-cultural missions or the church on mission is really only a small subset of a much larger mission. And in the first message, I took pains to point out that this whole idea of mission is not primarily about you and I. The Bible is the story of God's mission. It's what they call the missio dei, the mission of God. And our mission is a small subset of a much larger purpose that God has on his heart. And the Bible is the story of that mission. Now, I think what happens many times when Christians come to the Bible, they come to it not as a grand story, but as a collection of sometimes what appears to be completely disconnected smaller stories. We tend to read the small stories, you know, Allah, David and Goliath or Elijah with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and don't see any kind of connection in a, in a larger story. Sometimes we, we read the Bible a bit like Aesop's Fables, you know, a story with some kind of moral in it and fail to understand that while all of those things are true at a a small level, the Bible is not about those disconnected stories, it's about a grand narrative that outlines to us God's mission to restore all of the things that are broken. So it's not just primarily proverbs and songs and maxims and, and ethical rules. All of those things fit in, but have to be seen in the larger context of a story. So what the Bible presents to us, actually, is what we sometimes call a grand narrative or a worldview story. A worldview story seeks to give answers to the primal questions that every human being asks and must have an answer for. Questions like, what's the nature of the world that we live in? Who are we? What is the essential nature of humanity? What's gone wrong with the world? What's the solution to what's gone wrong with the world? Now, I can almost hear somebody saying as I ask those questions, well, I've got friends and family that would never think to ask those questions. They would say, I'm no philosopher, I couldn't care less, pass the beer. But what they don't understand is that is part of a story. That, it, that is a philosophy of life. They would never call it this, but we the technical term is hedonism. It's eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Get the most out of the moment that you can. Live for your own personal happiness. That is a, that is a story. So every single one of us live by a story. Human beings are condemned to live in and by and be shaped by a story. Now the Bible purports to provide answers for those deep questions at a much more satisfying level than I don't know past the beer. What's the nature of the world we inhabit? And the Bible says it is the good creation of the one living personal God. Who are we as human beings? We are human persons made in the image of that one living personal God, we are his creatures, but we are unique among the other creatures in spiritual, moral relationships and responsibility. The question, what's gone wrong with the world? Well, the Bible says man has turned from God. We have distrusted his benevolence, we've disobeyed his authority, we've disregarded the boundaries that he established to guard the freedom that he originally gave us. Then, well, what's the solution? What can, what can we do about the problem? Well, the biblical answer says, in and of ourselves, nothing. The solution, however, has been initiated by God through the choice of a people, Abraham's descendants, through whom God intends to bring blessing to the nations and restoration to the world. And that plan finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, through his life death, and resurrection. So the Bible then is this grand story, the grand narrative, a worldview story. As I said, we are all shaped by stories. We live in stories. Len Sweet says we have a storied identity. There isn't anybody who doesn't live and is shaped by a story. The only question that we have to answer is, are we going to make an effort to be ensured we are governed by the right story rather than the wrong one? I talked to you about how the Bible's story has been likened to a, a play with a number of acts. So, for example, in the Bible, act one is creation. Act two is the fall and everything that results as a result of that fall. Act three, which is the largest portion of this story, is God's redemption. And finally, act four is future hope. And through this story, we see God on a mission. This is the outline of the Missio Dei. He has a purpose, and he's working it out. So that was basically lesson one, okay? In the second message, I talked about the nature of the God who is on mission. And we looked at the book of Exodus as a paradigm of who this God is and how he acts. And we saw that this God wills to be known, He's not hiding in the dark. He wants to be known. We, see, we saw that he, was, he is incomparable. Thirdly, that he is sovereign over all. And fourthly, we talked about the fact that he acts for the sake of his name. In message three, I talked about the people of the mission. I began to talk about those who God has enlisted and the theological term is elected to partner with him in this wider mission. And we examined the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I talked about the fact that Genesis 12 has to be seen in its context. The lead-up chapters give us the reason for Genesis chapter 12. In chapters 3 to 11 of the book of Genesis, we see the complete disintegration of human society. The fall has taken place, and although there are a couple of acts of God's grace in that intervening period, the trajectory is down. The the nature of society is is violence, violence, God God looks at them at one point and says, I'm sorry that I've made them. So this downward trajectory poses a cosmic question that God either has to come up with an answer for or give up on his mission to redeem and restore. What can be done about this downward trajectory of man's failure and sin? And God provides a cosmic answer that only God could come up with. He calls an elderly, childless couple and promises to make them the launch pad, the fountainhead of a cosmic mission of rescue and redemption. Bishop NT. Wright says this, he says, the story of Israel, starting with Abraham, had always been the start of a rescue operation, the beginning of a long purpose to put humans right and so in the end put the whole world right. So the calling of Abraham is the beginning of a rescue mission. What we looked at then was God's initial choice of and addresses and promises to Abraham, and we saw that they were a manifestation of God's unconditional mercy and grace. God reaches out in mercy and grace to Abraham. He did not depend on any prior conditions that Abraham had met to merit that mercy and grace. They emerge, the mercy and grace emerge out of the unexpected and unmerited character of God and out of God's undaunted determination to bless the human race in spite of all that's thwarted his goodwill up to this point. So we see this call is unmerited in terms of its mercy and grace, and yet on the other side, There is an implied conditionality in this call because Abraham has to respond to the grace that he's been shown. And he responds to it with faith and obedience because the call of God said to Abraham, get up and go. So Abraham had to respond. Now, Right from the start of the story, we see a definite tension between God's unconditional grace on the one hand and Abraham's faith and obedience in in response to that grace on the other. And you can come right over into the New Testament and you see both Paul and James still grappling with that tension. People who read Paul say it's the grace of God. It's all about the grace of God. But you have to read James who says, listen, In response to the grace, there has to be works, there has to be obedience, there has to be faith. And you you see them still in the New Testament grappling with that tension of unconditional grace and yet the conditionality of faith and obedience. I talked and have talked actually a number of times about the elements that are discernible in firstly Abraham's call and then Israel's call later into nationhood. One found in Genesis 18, the other found in Exodus 19. And we saw three things. First of all, election. God makes a sovereign choice of a person and a people. Secondly, there is the ethics that link part one with part three. So part one is election, Next, you have ethics, which is a community who grows up committed to walking in God's ways with a special attention to righteousness and justice. And the third element is mission. The purpose of all this is to bless the nations. Without the middle connecting the other two, mission fails. Okay, so there's election, there's ethics, there's mission. What we did then is we went right over to the New Testament, and I read you a portion out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, and I want to read it to you again in the the, uh, J.B. Phillips version. It says this. This is speaking to us as a New Testament community. But you are God's chosen generation, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his peculiar people. All of the old titles of God's people now belong to you. It is for you now to demonstrate the goodness of him who has called you out of darkness into his amazing light. In the past, you were not a people at all. Now you are the people of God. Now what Paul is doing here is he's going right back to the call of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. And he is molding us, grafting, as the word Paul uses later, into that story. We are continuous with Abraham and Israel. And we see the same three elements that were in Abraham's call and Israel's call. There's election. And Paul says, you are a chosen, or he could say you're an elect generation. You are to be a holy nation, a people, a community who reflect the character of the God that's called you. That's ethics. And in mission, verse 12 says, that people seeing you will glorify God when they see how well you conduct yourselves. So what we are seeing is that we are continuous in this story. This story is ongoing, and we have been grafted into it. We noted how Israel failed spectacularly. Having been given this calling, called to be a reflection of God's character, to bless the nations, they fail spectacularly. They really, if ever, come even close to being a community that ethically reflect God's holy character uh, to the nations. In fact, what they do is they nationalize God and keep the nations out. By the time you get to Jesus' time, they've built a temple and there's a court out there where the nations can come if they really want to. But, but the whole purpose has, has turned in upon itself and Israel have made God their national God. The rescue operation for the whole of um, the cosmos, for the people of the world, Israel, now needs rescuing. The lifeboat, as it were, that God has launched for this rescue mission has been smashed on the rocks. So so now what? How will God's purpose go forward now? Now, I talked to you about the fact that the whole of the Old Testament actually can be seen as God's search for a faithful Israelite a descendant of Abraham through whom he could fulfill his plan and promise to bless the nations of the world. Israel, his corporate son, failed. So the Bible says in the fullness of time, he sent forth his beloved son, born of a woman, it says in Galatians, born under the law. What that's saying is he's a faithful Israelite. David Halwerda says, He, Jesus, is the representative embodiment of Israel through whom the nations will be blessed. In this one descendant of of Abraham, God finds faithfulness. And through this one, he can see his plan to bless the nations come to fruition. This one assumes Israel's identity. That's why he says, I am the true vine. And I talked to you about I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but why wouldn't Jesus just say, I'm like a vine. When he said, I am the true vine, he's doing far more than just setting up some kind of analogy. The children of Israel understood themselves through the prophetic scriptures of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others that they were Israel that they were Yahweh's vine. They were his vineyard. They were to bring forth fruit. So the the vine was a symbol of the nation. So when Jesus stands up and says, I am the true vine, he's saying, The vine that you were called to be has failed. I come to fulfill and to embody your identity. And then when he says I'm the true light, he is he's embodying their vocation because Isaiah 49 says that these people, this community were to be a light to the nations, but they weren't. They they didn't do it. And so this faithful Israelite comes along as the true vine, as the true light and fulfills God's purpose. And now, that's basically where we, what we, where we got to. I, I want to move on a little bit from there because we come now to what we call the New Testament. And, you know, for a lot of people, that switch from the Old Testament to the New Testament is a bridge, is a, is a, is a, 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 a gulf, rather, that, that they don't know how to bridge. And for many people, they think, oh, well, the, the story somehow has changed. Many, many Protestant churches have been deeply impacted and shaped by an ancient heretic called Marcion. The man Marcion rejected the Old Testament. He claimed that it revealed a different God from the one that Jesus revealed, and he divorced the Old Testament from the story presented in the New Testament. Now, many of you will have heard of Marcion, and it's not that we embrace his teachings directly or even knowingly, but in many Pentecostal um, Protestant churches, we are naively Marcionite in much of our theology and practice. We've, we've turned our backs on the Old Testament part of the story. Many people consider the New Testament to introduce basically a new story. We imagine that Jesus in the Gospels and later Paul in his epistles are turning their back and rejecting what we call Judaism. And they tend to think about the Old Testament and its Judaism as being people's attempt to gain favor by doing the works of the law. And so they'll say the Old Testament is all about legalism. The New Testament is all about grace. And the thinking is that Jesus swept away all of that, and now we are under grace and not, and not works. Old Testament law, New Testament grace. However, We've already seen how both the election of Abraham and the calling of Israel were the result of God acting in grace. Abraham didn't have to meet any prior conditions. God simply called him in his mercy and grace. He acted in grace and faithfulness in his call of and then in his redemption of the people of Israel. The law was given to Israel in a context of already established redemption founded on grace. The law was never ever given or intended to be a means of achieving salvation. It was given as guidance to respond to salvation and grace that had already been revealed. So simply to turn your back on the Old Testament and say, oh, that's all law, we're now under grace, is to completely misread the story. The law was given in the context of an already established relationship of redemption and grace, both to Abraham and to Israel. The obedience that the law required flowed from grace. It didn't merit it. Obedience was a response to grace, not the reason for it. Obedience was the fruit and proof of an already established relationship founded on grace. You know, the text, We love him because he first loved us, may in fact be a New Testament text, but it echoes the heartbeat of the Old Testament story. God loved this people and moved in grace to redeem them, to restore them, gave them the Torah so that they would know how to respond obediently to the grace that they have been shown. Most people turn their back on the law without even understanding its substructure. The substructure of the law is firstly about gratitude for what God has done in showing us grace. It's an invitation to be shaped into the God that has graced us and redeemed us. Leviticus says, be holy as I am holy. It's an invitation to be shaped into the shape and the ethical character of the God who's redeemed us. It's a call to be a different kind of people because God is a different kind of God. Now, friends, that is not a radically different story to the one that you and I inhabit right now. We respond to grace. We are shaped into his image. We are different because we follow a God who's different. This is our story. This is the story that runs through the scripture. The Old Testament is not a radically different story. The New Testament is a continuation of a story that was in existence for thousands of years. Jesus didn't imagine that he had come to start something radically new, Listen to this in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm gonna put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. So what Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to abolish the story, to change the story. I come as the fulfillment of the story. The story has been leading to this point. Jesus was the fulfillment of all that had gone before and is the pivot point of all that will follow. That's why Paul says of Jesus in 2 Corinthians, for it is he who is the yes to all of God's promises. He's the yes and amen to all that God has said. He's the fulfillment and completion of the story to this point. So the gospel writers certainly did not see Jesus as starting something radically new and different. They saw themselves as standing within the still unfolding story of Israel's covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy that deliberately connects and links Jesus with the previous part of the story. He's the son of Abraham, That anchors the story that's about to unfold, centering on Jesus in Israel's history. Now, I I know genealogies are pretty uninteresting and pretty much unedifying, you know, uh, for, for people like you and me, but what it does is ensures the continuation, the continuity of Israel's story with the one that Matthew's about to tell us. It's his way of saying, listen, if you don't understand the earlier part of the story, you won't understand what I'm about to tell you because they're linked. It's like stepping into the play in act three and you've missed the preparatory acts one and two. So what Matthew does is he prepares the reader to interpret Jesus as the heir to the promises that had been initially made to Abraham. Richard B. Hayes says this, Matthew's references to Israel's scriptures, and there are at least 60 quotations and hundreds of more indirect uh, allusions, uh, uh, situate the story of Jesus within the comprehensive interpretation of the story of Israel. So this has to be seen in light of that is what he's saying. When you come to Mark's gospel, now I won't take time to look at this but uh, because I did in the summer series and if you didn't hear the podcast, perhaps it might be worthwhile going back to listen to it. But what I suggested was Mark's gospel seems to be built around the prophetic promises of Isaiah that there would come a second new exodus and that Jesus would be the Moses of that second exodus. When you come to Luke's gospel, both the gospel and the book of Acts, what Luke is doing is assuring his readers that Israel's story has come to its consummation in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's why it starts in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and as much as they have... Inasmuch as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about the things that have been promises, promised that are now being fulfilled. So Luke, like Mark and Matthew, uh, uh, is hooking into the old story, not rejecting it. Not turning his back on it, but saying this part of the story is the fulfillment of that. And again, Richard Hayes says, In Luke's gospel, the story of Jesus is seamlessly joined with the much longer narrative of God's promises to Israel so that it becomes a single story about God's action to gather and redeem a people prepared for the Lord. Again, John's gospel, inextricably linked with the story that has gone before. And you can't understand John's gospel unless you know the story of Israel, the liturgical festivals and symbols that recall and represent that story. So in John's gospel, Jesus is presented as the story's climax. He's the true temple that the previous temple simply pointed to. He's the embodiment of the feast of Passover, the feast of tabernacles. He's the true manna, the true bread that Israel were fed with in the wilderness. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's vast matrix of symbols. So this is not a new story. All of the gospel writers point back and connect us with the story to this point, the promises given to Abraham that have been fulfilled in this faithful Israelite, and now God's plan to redeem and restore goes forward in the community that are filled with the Spirit and are called to follow this Jesus. So then you come to Paul. In Acts chapter 9, you have the story of Paul's conversion. Now, we need to be incredibly aware of how we use that term conversion or converted Normally we apply the term to one who converts from one religion to another, or perhaps from no religion to a religion. Paul was not converted in that sense. Paul didn't change religions. Paul didn't stop believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel's God. Paul believed after his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road that Israel's God had done what he always said he would do, that Israel's scriptures had actually been now fulfilled, but just not in the way that he imagined. So Paul isn't turning his back on the, the story and starting a new religion. Paul's understanding is that in following the crucified Jesus and in announcing that Israel's God had raised him from the dead, that he, Paul, was actually being loyal to the traditions of his ancestor and ancestors and to the story so far, in a way, however, that nobody had anticipated the one true living God had acted climactically and decisively in and even as Israel's Messiah. So what Paul does is in his epistles, he tells us that we as Jesus's followers have in the words of Romans chapter 11 been grafted into that story. We who were outside of the covenants, as Ephesians says, have now been taken and have been grafted into that story. You read Romans chapter 11. We are Abraham's seed. So Galatians chapter three, verse 29 says, if you belong to Christ, you are true descendants of Abraham. You are true heirs of the promise. Can you see the continuity of the story? Paul's not turning us back on the story. He's saying this grand narrative of God's plan to redeem found its fulfillment in the faithful Israelite Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And we now, as believers, are grafted into that story. And we are the seed of Abraham. He explains through the epistles how membership of and in that community and story has never been and is now presently not based on biology. So he's saying, listen, Abraham's seed was never really about DNA. It was always about faith and obedience. And it's no, it's no different now. It's not about biology, it's not about genealogy in that sense, it's about faith and obedience. And when we respond to the gospel in faith and obedience, we are grafted into that community and that story. And like Abraham and Israel before us, we have been elected, chosen by God. Like them, we are to respond with faith and obedience. And we are to be a community that ethically reflects the character of the God who has called us. The ultimate purpose in that is that we will reflect something to the nations of the world. This is how God has purposed to redeem and restore. I suspect that the angels, having heard of that plan, merely shook their head and thought, best of luck. Have you dealt with these people? Have you tried to work with them? Do you know how recalcitrant, do you know how stubborn And God said, it's my plan. I do not have a plan B. You're it. Even though you don't feel like it sometimes. The ultimate purpose of the calling of God in your life is that we would be connected into that community of life and love and mission. We are partners with God in the Missio Dei to bless the nations of the world and to see creation restored. And I want to tell you something. It is a story worth living for. It is a story that gives coherence and purpose through all of the events of our lives. In conclusion, I want to ask you, sometimes it's worth stopping and saying, what story is shaping my life? Because as I said to you before, all of us have identities that are storied. Even when you don't think, I don't live according to stories, pass the beer, as I said before. That is a story. There are stories that are shaping our lives. Our challenge is to make sure that the story that shapes our life is the right story. And we understand that the, 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 culture, the cultural tsunami that throws all kinds of stories at us are not the stories that shape us. You know, tragically, for many people in our culture, and, and actually, I think for many Christians, the story that shapes them is one of radical individual, individualism or, or hedonism. Now, I know when you use the word hedonism, most people think of, you know, some kind of debauched party, but, but hedonism basically means living for my pleasure. We live in a culture that is radically shaped by that story. We do what we want so that we can be happiest. And you know, the tragic thing is when I hear most Christian parents talk about what they want for their children, the thing that is always said is I want them just to be happy. Well, friends, it's not that I want mine to be miserable, but I want them to be more than just happy. I want them to be shaped by a story that sometimes will involve happiness, sometimes will involve tremendous hardship, but it's a story that's worth your life. And if you are simply being shaped by getting ahead in this world, being happy, then then I suggest to you that actually something is shaping you that perhaps should not be. When life is all about my fulfillment, my dreams, my happiness, my family, then I think what you are doing is seeking to simply make the world orbit around the center of your universe and it happens to be you. And Jesus had words to say about that. He said, when a man seeks to save his own life or to put himself at the center of his world, he loses it. But when a man is willing to give up his life for another story and invest himself in that story, the crazy thing is he finds it. Everything that he went looking for, he finds in that story. And the challenge of this series of messages is not just to give you an overall picture of what the Bible is about. I hope it's done that. But more than that, it is to give you a sense of your life as being shaped by a story. Make sure it is the right story. Make sure that your life is in alignment with a larger story and not just revolving around your own personal dreams, fulfillment, happiness, get-aheadness. If you look after his story, he'll look after yours. You know, the ironic thing is in our culture, we have more to live with and less to live for than any other culture in, the top, in, the, in pretty much in the history of the world. In our Western culture, we have given up large stories. The postmodern story is that there are no large stories. So make up your own. Unfortunately, what they fail to realize is that is a large story. You can't avoid large stories. Make sure it's the right one. The tragedy of, 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 of perhaps, as I say, our culture is we have lots to live with and nothing to live for. The Bible gives us a story to live for. It's a story worth your life, worth your family's life, worth your commitment, worth your time, your energy, and your money. Because if you don't give your time, your energy, to money, and money to that story, you will give it to another that will be less than, and it will... Bring less than to you that 's the challenge um, I, w- I want to try and finish it next week okay i 'm going to invite the musicians to come and uh, i 'll give you a clue in terms of where I want to finish the great The great challenge of Israel and the reason they never found fulfillment in god 's call was that they were co- constantly giving themselves to idolatry they constantly gave themselves. To things that were less than Yahweh. And the church is no different. Largely, the church has failed in its mission over time because we give ourselves to worship of things that don't deserve our worship. And I think one of the great purifying powers that is available to break idolatry is worship of Yahweh. As we give ourselves to worship Him, He will highlight things that need to be broken, that need to be given away, that need to die so that we can truly live. And I want to challenge you this morning as we rise in this part of our service to worship, that you don't just see it as, oh, this is the concluding part of our service, but this is the opportunity for my life to be once again aligned with that larger story, that I worship Yahweh and that I'm part of that story. So let's rise and do that, shall we? for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.